Hey everyone, my name is Randall Heyer and I'm the worship arts pastor here at Cochrane Alliance Church. We are so glad that you've come to check out the latest sermon and we pray that you are encouraged, challenged, and ultimately that you are drawn closer to Jesus. Enjoy. Let's, uh, let's pray together this morning as we come into uh, to the word. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to worship together with our brothers and sisters in faith. Thank you for the opportunity to come and, and just make our hearts known to you, that we have a space here that we can worship you and glorify you. And as we come to your word, Father, we expect that you will be speaking to us, and we invite you, Holy Spirit, to speak to our minds and to our hearts the truth that we need to receive today. And we don't know always where that comes from. Sometimes it's simply by being in your presence that uh, you begin to bring things to mind and into our hearts that we need to, uh, to see that we haven't seen before. So I invite you, Holy Spirit, to speak to us today. If there's anything that would block your voice or hinder our ability to see, uh, we just pray this place that that would be removed, that we would see what you want us to see and hear what you want us to hear. And so we invite you in this place today. In the name of Jesus, amen. At the end of every sermon, we we recite together now Acts 1.8, where Jesus tells his his followers that you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, which is a phenomenal thing to say. But as we read through the book of Acts, you kind of wonder if uh, if the disciples didn't fully grasp what Jesus meant by that. And what I mean is that the Holy Spirit continues to lead the believers outside their comfortable social circles and outside the traditions of their culture and even outside the traditions of their Jewish faith to embrace the diversity of the church universal. And there's all these places of, of almost tension where they go, that person, that person, those people, And they start to realize when Jesus said to the ends of the earth, he really meant to the ends of the earth and he meant all mankind. We've seen how the Holy Spirit has been bringing people to faith these last three weeks, people who would have absolutely shocked the leaders and the believers of the early church. Think with me about Saul, the greatest enemy of the church at that point, zealously pursuing these Christians, hunting them down with religious passion and zeal, believing he is doing the work of the Lord, dragging them into prison, saying of himself that he was breathing threats and murder against the church the biggest enemy of the church, and he has an encounter with Jesus. And he's welcomed into the church, and they say, here's Brother Saul. You can imagine some Christians going, well, not him. Certainly not him. Please, not him. I mean, not only do they, are they maybe still afraid of him, but there's got to be a, maybe a little bit of resentment. That guy, out of all the people, you, that guy is saved? Yeah, that guy, Brother Saul. We saw how Cornelius... A Gentile, a Roman soldier, was filled with the Holy Spirit in the presence of Peter, shocking the Jewish believers. Pastor Mike got across to us kind of the shocking nature of this, but if you're a Jewish person and and you do view the Gentiles as an unclean people group, a people who even if they agree that the Jewish God is the only God, they're still not allowed into the inner courtyard because they're unclean Gentiles and suddenly the Holy Spirit of God fills an unclean Gentile. That means the very presence of God is now dwelling a Gentile, and that's shocking. How could that be? 
They would have easily said, as Pastor Mike kind of led us down that road, they, the Jewish believers would have easily said, there's no such thing as a Gentile believer because it's like, well, there's no such thing as a Gentile Jew, right? Like does, those things don't go together. Even if a Gentile believed in the Jewish God, they weren't fully Jewish. That didn't happen. That's not how that works. But the Holy Spirit is filling Cornelius and his household, changing everything opening Peter's eyes to the fact that God truly is at work in all mankind, that salvation is for everyone. And we got into this a little bit, but it, it bears repeating that this was so shocking that Peter isn't applauded for this. The church doesn't go, oh, great, oh, wonderful, wonderful, Gentiles are coming to faith. Actually, he gets criticized. Read in Acts 11, 1 to 3, that the apostles and believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him. They didn't say, oh, wonderful, Peter. They criticized him. And they said, you went into the house of an uncircumcised man and you ate with him. How could you? And so Peter then has to explain to the Jewish believers the whole story, telling them the final kind of picture, saying, hey, the Holy Spirit was poured out on Cornelius before he was even baptized. And knowing that that was the case, Peter says his conclusion, well, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? If the Holy Spirit is coming upon them, who am I to deny them? And after this event, Luke Uh, the author of Acts starts to detail the missionary work of Paul and Barnabas and their companions through predominantly Gentile regions. And we're starting to see that many Gentiles start to come to faith. And and this, again, doesn't cause a lot of celebration. This actually causes a lot of tension back in Jerusalem. We saw last week, as Pastor, Pastor Randall preached, some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and must be required to keep the law of Moses. And so they had to have this discussion And as Pastor Randall showed us, what they did in that discussion is they had teachable spirits. They honored one another and submitted to one another, submitted ultimately to the Holy Spirit and came to this decision. But what we're seeing now is that the Holy Spirit continues to expand the circle of who's invited into the family of God. And every time that circle gets bigger, it creates more diversity in the church body as well as more difficult conversations. When we look at the New Testament letters, we're starting to see this wild, diverse mix of Jewish believers and Gentile believers and, you know, people from all sorts of different backgrounds. We have former Pharisees and former synagogue leaders probably worshiping and breaking bread with former occultic sorcerers and pagan priests, and now they're all together in the family of God. That creates really cool diversity and really uh, difficult conversations. They're all made new in Christ. They're all united together in Christ through baptism in the Spirit, but they're going to have to work out what that actually looks like. And many of Paul's letters to these churches are going to be addressing the complexity and the conflict that comes with this type of diversity, right? Romans 14 is that perfect example. Well, some believe you need to celebrate the the Sabbaths and the new moons, and others believe any day is holy. Well, let each one be convinced in their own mind. Because you have this diverse view in this diverse group. And so what we see is that God's plan for his church is diversity. Having people from different cultures and backgrounds be united into one spiritual family. Practicing mutual submission and loving one another as brothers and sisters. That's the picture of church that we get. It's not that we're all, um, we all agree on every single minor detail. It's that we submit to one another look to others' needs ahead of our own needs, and we love one another as brothers and sisters in a true family, spiritual sense. When I was back in Drumheller, we had this season of ministry that I think kind of gave a picture into what 
some of these churches in, in the early church might have looked like. This is really diverse, kind of wild group of people mixed together. So it didn't last long. It was about a three-month span. But in Drumheller, we had an addictions recovery house called Grace House. And there was a guy there who had... Um, being a former pastor and got into some addiction and he was a pretty charismatic dude. So he brought the whole Grace House to our church on Sunday morning. So all, you know, whatever it is, 12 or 15 guys would be at church because this guy brought him there. And then we also, at that time, the prison had... Um, had asked if they could bring prisoners into church on Sunday, the prisoners who wanted to come into church. And so we said, yeah, and the, you know, the guards would come in. So you had the Grace House guys over here, and then you had the prison guys who would come in, about six or seven prisoners with their guard, and he would sit behind them, and they would be there worshiping with us. We had people who worked at the prison, so their guards would be there and their parole officers would be there. And then we had some of, you know, kind of the older farmer couples who'd never missed a day of church in their life and had never, you know, interacted with people like that before, maybe. And, and then we had these, these new believers, these people who are first-generation Christians who'd come to faith only a few years earlier. Some of them, their husbands had just been baptized like a year before, and they're all together on a Sunday morning worshiping. And those prisoners, we loved it. When you were leading worship, you're like, man, I hope the prisoners are here today because they were so happy to be out. And they would sing really loud. And they, uh, they always clapped on beat uh, really loud. And so it was really awesome. Uh, that was, so we were like, yeah, the prisoners are here. Oh, it was going to be fun, fun worship time. They were super into it. And, and that season didn't last long, you know, in the Grace House thing, uh, people shuffle in and out as they finish their program, and, and you get different, uh, sometimes the prison guards don't really want to bring the prisoners in, it's a bit of extra work, and so that season didn't last long, but I always thought to myself, what, an, what a great picture of what the church looks like. It's diverse, it's, it's kind of messy, and there were, some, there were some points of tension, right, because there were some prison guards who said, boy, I'm not sure I'm comfortable having prisoners that I see in the prison see me with my family at church, and that's a, that's a legitimate concern, and so we had to navigate, you know, how do, we, how do we have those conversations? We navigated it kind of looking at, at the letters that Paul wrote to the churches. How do we do this with grace? How do we, how do we bring in some safety without, you know, making anyone feel unwelcome, because everyone's welcome. But that's, you know, there's this tension, there's this messiness. And I, you know, my personal belief is that when a church, when a church is being led by the Spirit of God, it's going to look like that. It's going to be a little bit messy, and it's going to be fun. And there's going to be some tension. But that's really what God sort of desires, is he's calling all people to himself. And so, the church needs to be filled of all those types of people. Everyone welcome to, to pursue Jesus together. So today what I want to do is, is look a little bit in detail at, at some of these people that, that Paul preached the gospel to, just to gain an insight as to how the Holy Spirit leads us to people and even to places that we might never expect. And we encounter people with vastly different backgrounds and, and different experiences in, in their life, and they're all called to join the family of God. And so what I want to do is look at, uh, to me, the best place to look at kind of the different types of people that are being called into the church is in Acts chapter 16 when Paul's in Philippi with his companions. And so what I want you to do is we're just going to go through the stories of the people who come, who, ex who encounter Jesus in, in different ways. And I want you to kind of pay attention to their stories. Like think about them as, as people. These are real people who really existed, who had encounters with Jesus, and just think about the lives that they're leaving and the, the life that they're entering into. And so we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 16, and the first person that Paul and his companions meet in Philippi is attending the ancient equivalent of a Bible study. 
So Paul and his friends go looking for a synagogue, thinking that on the Sabbath there might be some Jews gathered near the river. So there probably wasn't enough Jewish population to have an actual synagogue. So they thought, okay, if we go down near the river, uh, maybe we'll find some Jews praying on the Sabbath. But that actually isn't what they find. We pick up in Acts chapter 16. Where am I here? On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate by the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women gathered there. A God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, was listening. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. After she and her household were baptized, she urged us, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Just want to talk a little bit about Lydia. What do we what do we know about her? She's the first convert to Christ in, in Philippi. And we've got a few clues about Lydia from this. It says that she's from the city of Thyatira, which is about 240 miles, I believe, from Philippi. So she's pretty far away. And what that tells us is that she's likely ethnically kind of of an Asian descent, and, but she also had a house in Philippi. So this tells us that she's probably economically very wealthy. She's from Theatira, but she's inviting Paul to stay at her house in Philippi. So, okay, she's got two different properties here. She's got a big household. She's a dealer in purple cloth. It's a very expensive uh, trade good to deal in. She's in Philippi to trade it. And so she's a, a woman of fairly good wealth and, and means. And we're also told that she was a worshiper of God. So somehow along her journeys, Lydia had come to believe that there was one God. And so she listens to the teachings of the Jewish believers, trying to grasp what it means to live a God-fearing life. She wants to live out her faith in the context of her family and her business. She's a God-fearing woman. And so I think this is kind of an, inter- an important point in the story of Lydia's conversion, that she's, she's an intellectual person, and she's a seeker after truth. And she was gathered on the Sabbath with a group of women to hear the scriptures explained, right? That's what I mean. It's kind of the ancient equivalent of a Bible study. We're going down to the river. We're going to study what God says. We're going to learn what God says together. And then Paul shows up. And again, remember, Paul's only in Philippi because the Holy Spirit directed him there. He's not there because he thought Philippi was a good place to go. He's there because the Holy Spirit didn't allow him to go to certain places. He saw a man in Macedonia crying out for help, and he ends up there, and he sees Lydia. And he, Paul engages with Lydia's reasoning. He engages her in intellectual discussion. And it's this impartation of knowledge that, that allows her to become a believer in Christ. She sees the truth of what Paul's saying. Her intellect is awakened, and she believes, and she gets baptized. I love it. Again, notice in Acts. She believes, she gets baptized. Like, it's just boom. You believe, you get baptized. You believe, you get baptized. It's just done. And, uh, and then she invites Paul to stay at her home, and I'm kind of guessing she's got a nice place. I mean, she's a fairly wealthy woman. She's a dealer in purple cloth. She's got, you know, and so... Um, so that's, I think that's probably a pretty sweet deal for Paul, you know, the tent maker and blue-collar worker. And he says, you know, sometimes I don't even know where I'm going to lay my head down at night. And now he gets to stay at Lydia's house. Kind of a, a pretty refreshing place to stay. And so the church in Philippi begins with this intellectual explanation of the gospel to a high-class, wealthy businesswoman at, you know, kind of a first-century Bible study. But it gets more diverse from there. And what I want you also to notice is there's kind of different ways that the Spirit of God leads you in how you explain your faith. To Lydia, it's an intellectual explanation. I'm going to engage your reason and your logic. But it gets more diverse. Let's continue into our, our narrative. Picking up again in Acts chapter 16. Once as we were on our way to prayer, a slave girl met us who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. 
She made a large profit for her owners by fortune-telling. As she followed Paul and us, she cried out, These men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation are the servants of the Most High God. And she did this for many days. Paul was greatly annoyed. Turning to the Spirit, he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out right away. And in the Greek text, it's telling us that she had a, a spirit of python. It says here a spirit, uh, she had a spirit, but the actual way that they describe it is she had a spirit of python. And, and that's linked to her being associated with the serpent oracle at Delphi. So this is putting us kind of in time and place. So this is a very real thing. They would channel spirits from the oracle of Delphi, known as the python spirit, and she would tell the fortune. She would divine the future. And I wonder what happened to this slave girl. We don't, we don't really know what happened to her after this. Her economic value to her owners was ruined, right? So Paul had freed her from this spirit of divination that they use for profit. And so I'm assuming she became kind of more centered and more clear-eyed and more like aware of who she is and where she is. But in all likelihood, she's still a slave to these men. Her slavery hasn't ended. She's been freed of spiritual bondage, but she's not free of who, who she belongs to. She's owned by these men, although she's now of no real economic value to them. And and I just want to pause here and think, like, some of us might have no way to relate to the story of Lydia, right, the businesswoman. We look at Lydia and maybe we're like, man, well, you know, that's nice, a a nice lady with a nice life receiving Jesus. How wonderful. But that's not my story. I can't relate with that. You know, for for some of us, for some of you, maybe Jesus found us in darker places than the equivalent of a first century Bible study. And I, I doubt any of you were fortune-telling demonized slave girls, but some of you might know what bondage to evil and dark things is like. You know, for some people, Jesus found them in the darkness of addiction or the darkness of a type of sexual corruption that wrecked them and others as they treated themselves and others cheaply. For some of us, God met us in the midst of really dark and horrific things And for some of us, we can't relate to Lydia, the put-together businesswoman, but as we hear about Jesus stepping into this dark space with this slave girl, we can go, you know, that's kind of where he found me, in the middle of my addiction, in the middle of my despair, in the middle of my darkness. He stepped into the dark and he ransomed me. He stepped into my darkness and he set me free, because that's one of the things Jesus does. With Lydia, it engages her intellect, and she goes, oh, I see the truth of it. For this demon-possessed slave girl, Jesus comes in in power and sets her free from the bondage of this, this dark spiritual thing. And we're left to wonder about the slave girl. You know, was she welcomed into the Philippian church congregation that's kind of forming probably out of Lydia's house? And in my mind, it's likely that the slave girl would have been brought into contact with this new house church meeting in Lydia's home. As we're going to see, Paul and Silas are going to be otherwise occupied, as in they're going to be whipped and beat and put into prison. Um, But Timothy and Luke are also on this, this journey. And so I it seems unlikely to me that this slave girl would sort of just be left after being set free. Jesus actually says, if you cast a spirit out of one person and nothing else comes, then seven more spirits come and fill it. And so I sort of have this idea that the early church would have said, okay, let's minister to her now. You know, even if they couldn't, I I imagine this slave girl would have eventually found her way to the people who speak and preach the name of Jesus because she's going, it's the name of Jesus that set me free. And I imagine she would have found herself there. But even if this uh, particular girl didn't find her way there, one thing we do know, if you're reading the book of Acts with us, you're going to see this all over the place. Consistently, when they go into a new city, one of the things that is happening is demons are being cast out. It's just happening all over the place. You can't really go through Acts without seeing that occurring. And so... In the congregations of the churches that were forming, there would have been people who were once like this demon-possessed slave girl. They would have been channeling spirits. They would have been um, inviting spirits to inhabit them. And then they're set free. And now they're part of the church. 
So just think about what kind of backstory there is to that when you've allowed yourself to channel spirits or maybe you've been um, enslaved uh, and, and forced into that type of life and then you're coming into the church. And so the, the, owner of this, uh, the owners of this girl are very upset, right? Because their source of income has been removed. And so they cause a great deal of trouble for Paul and Silas, and that's putting it mildly. Yet this actually leads to a third convert uh, in the city of Philippi. So we pick it up again. When the owners realized their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. The whole crowd joined in the attack against them, and the chief magistrates stripped off their clothes and ordered them beaten with rods. After they had severely flogged them, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to guard them carefully. Receiving such an order, he put them into the inner prison and secured their feet in stocks." You love a man like Paul who, you know, his whole life is summed up. He says to the church in Philippi later, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And so even in the jail cell, it's just an opportunity to speak of Christ and sing of his goodness. Because when to live is Christ, then even when you're in chains and your back is ripped open by rods, you go, well, might as well sing praises. Might as well pray. To live is Christ. And this leads to the third encounter, the third convert in the city of Philippi, the jailer. So what can we know about the jailer? You know, based on historical evidence of who jailers were at this time, in major Roman metropolitan areas like Philippi, the jailers in these jails were kind of almost always former highly decorated Roman soldiers who were given the gift of being a jailer. Like a jailer was a pretty cushy gig, right? It was a really, you got a good salary, you kind of got to command some troops, but you didn't have to go to the front lines of battle anymore. And so this is sort of, this Roman jailer would have probably been a retired, kind of a retired Roman officer, and um, he was highly decorated most likely, which means he's seen some combat. And I don't know how much you know about the Roman Empire and how they dealt with uh, their enemies, but they weren't, um, they stomped out anyone very quickly who opposed them. Now, as long as you agreed to live by their rules, they were pretty happy to let you live, but as soon as you deviated, uh, punishment was very swift. There's stories of, you know, little towns that would rebel that the Roman Empire would just go in and level the town and crucify, you know, 12, 20 people at one time. And so we're talking about a Roman guy who is highly decorated, meaning he's seen some action, he's seen some combat, he's, let's put it like this, he's, he's probably done some pretty horrific things if he's been part of the Roman army for any length of time. And so, so that's sort of what we know. And I, I don't know exactly what he'd been a part of, but I think you can assume that the jailer is a man who, who knows what it is to use violence, who knows what it is to use anger, and maybe he's okay with that, or maybe he's been disturbed by it. I mean, maybe he's carrying some PTSD from some of the things he's seen and done, but this jailer is about to experience something he's never experienced before. And it all begins with this attitude and this posture of Paul and Silas as they're chained up. We read in verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken, and immediately the doors were opened and everyone's chains came loose. When the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison standing open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself, since he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul called out in a loud voice, Don't harm yourself, because we're all here. The jailer called in for the lights, and he rushed in. And he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? 
They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him along with everyone in his house. He took them that same hour of the night and he washed their wounds. Right away, he and his whole family were baptized. He brought them into his house, set a meal before them and rejoiced because he had come to believe in God with his entire household. So in Rome at this time, if a prisoner escaped or if a prisoner was lost, whoever was responsible for that prisoner would pay the price with his life. And it would be a pretty public spectacle. They would drag you out and they'd say, this man has failed in his duty and he'll be executed by Rome for failing his duty to Rome, which is a really shameful thing, which kind of gives you insight as to why the jailer decides he's going to kill himself. It's, he knows he's going to die because prisoners have escaped. And it's better to do it himself than to be dragged out in public and executed publicly to avoid some of that shame. It's better to die now than later. Also, you know, there might be a little bit of whipping, a little bit of torture there, and I mean, at least this is a quick death. So he yanks out his sword and he gets ready to kill himself. But Paul shows him this kind of better identity, this more fulfilling reality, and he shows the jailer, like, what it really means to be a Christian because, because they don't leave. Right? They don't leave. They stay. And then he comes in and he says, he shows the jailer this kindness. And I think that's such an interesting thing because I, I want us to think about if we were locked in stocks and we had previously before that been whipped, so your back is ripped open and you're bleeding and you're in pain, and you've been locked in stocks, and suddenly the Lord miraculously lets you escape, I think there's a part of us who'd be like, yeah, and we get out of there. But Paul and Silas don't. So sold out are they to the proclamation of the gospel that when they notice the jailer about to take his own life, they pause and they say, hey, we're all here. We're not going anywhere. So when they have the chance to run away, they stay, and the jailer's amazed by this. That's the testimony. That's the testimony that leads to him becoming a believer. And so Paul engaged Lydia through her intellect and the slave girl through spiritual power, but he engages the jailer by being a living witness to a miracle and then the kindness to stay when they could run. The kindness to say, hey, we're, we're with you here. The man who locked us in jail, the man who whipped us, the man who kind of deserves death, we're not going anywhere. It's just a living witness to who Jesus is. I think that's actually a really beautiful thing. And so this is how the Philippian church begins. It begins with a businesswoman, a demon-possessed slave girl, and a military man duty-bound to the Roman Empire. These are the first three people that experience the power of Jesus. And we don't know much about the slave girl, but just knowing the context, we're like, yeah, at least there's definitely someone who's been in that position that's going to be starting the core of this group. And so as we study the letters of Paul and Peter and John to the early church across the empire, it becomes easy to see this great diversity of people who are now joined together by faith and by baptism and by the Holy Spirit. There were Wealthy people and poor people, there were Jews and there was Greeks and there was former Pharisees and former pagan priests or people who channeled spears through their bodies. But when the church is being led by the Spirit of God, this is the kind of diversity we can expect to see. People from all walks of life with all different stories united because of what Jesus had done for them. And that diversity isn't easy from the human perspective. Right? We see that in the New Testament letters, those places of tension and potential conflict where believers have to listen to one another and listen to the Holy Spirit. And what happens when you have a church that's in tension like this is we need to rely more upon the power of the Holy Spirit as we make decisions. 
We need to submit to, to one another. We saw that in Pastor Randall's sermon last week, right? The diversity of including Gentiles into the faith forced this conversation to happen between the legalists and those who had seen God move in power, bringing the Gentiles to faith without the law. And so submission to one another and honoring one another was required if they're going to move forward in unity. And so as we close today, I just want us to think about this idea that we all have different stories, right? I don't know about you, but one of the things that I'm fascinated by people's stories, it doesn't matter who they are. If you just ask someone, tell me about yourself. Tell me who you are. Where'd you come from? What are the significant moments in your life? Everybody is fascinating. So I just want you to think about the stories that we heard today. Lydia, the demon-possessed slave girl, the jailer. I mean, think about the stories of their life, the things they'd seen and the things they'd experienced. And then I want you to think about yourself and the people you sit by and the stories that they have, the things that shaped them. And I want us to think about this as we close, that we all come from different places and different backgrounds. We have different stories, but we're all made new in Christ. But here's what I want us to think about is that we still carry those stories with us. The things we've experienced in our life, they don't define us, but they do shape us. Some of the things that we experienced in life shaped us for good, and some of the things we've experienced in life by now are, were profoundly negative. And sometimes even into our new life with Christ, there's these events from our past that shape the way that we react to people and situations. You ever met, you know, even you'll meet Christians sometimes, and, and it's like they're seeing the world through a lens of bitterness, Right? They kind of always are quick to take offense, even though they know that they shouldn't. They're like, what's wrong with me? It's like, well, what happened in your life before faith that, that's, that's lingering? And if we can deal with that, if we can get Jesus to help you deal with that, I think we're going to see that the, your mind is renewed with truth. And so the reality of the Christian life is we're invited to live into this new life with Christ. But as long as we're on this earth, we still carry those stories with us. And sometimes we carry our wounds with us too. And although faith in Jesus removes our sin and our shame and our guilt and he makes us a new creation, we're actually encouraged in scripture to grow into this new life, to keep following the example of Jesus, to keep throwing off the old life and putting on the new. And following Jesus, what we find is not a one-time decision, it's a lifetime of decisions. It's a lifetime of learning and growing and being sanctified by the Holy Spirit, understanding who we are and knowing our story is often a part of that sanctification process. I think um, of, of the life stories, like I said, of the people in our passage today, of Lydia, the slave girl, the jailer. And although they're made new in Christ, I mean, there's no doubt they're carrying some of that, those stories into their new life with Christ. And they're going to have to consciously throw off old habits and ways of being to embrace the spirit-filled life. Paul reminds the believers in Ephesus that this is, what, this is what he teaches. He says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So I like the, the phrasing here that you are made new. Right? It's, it's kind of this idea of continually being made new, continually taking off the old and putting on the new. And every day we're kind of making a decision to live into the life we have in Christ and not to be controlled by that old nature. And so I think some of the tensions you have in the early church and even in our churches today is we have people that don't realize that even in their new life with Christ, they often still need to process the story of their life in light of who they now know Jesus to be. Right? Paul puts it, we need to be made new. We have to put on our new self. And to do this, they need to go through the story of their life, but now with Jesus as a guide. 
to find out why they do what they do and why they see the world in certain ways and where Jesus might want to renew their minds with truth or speak healing to a place of woundedness. They now should sit down and go through their life. But now they have Jesus as a guide and they have the Holy Spirit informing them, going, where were you in this? Where were you in this? What is something I believe about myself that isn't true, that Jesus wants to speak truth to? And so, you know, this sounds kind of... I know sometimes people are kind of resistant to this. There's kind of this myth out there that, okay, well, you're a new creation in Christ, so now you're good. Just read the Bible more. And I don't know, I've been a pastor for 10 years, which I guess isn't that long, but in my experience, I've met with so many people who are like, I keep reading the Bible, but I never seem to change. I can't seem to do, there's things in me that I can't seem to change, and what they really need to do is there's things that have happened in their life that they need Jesus to come and speak, it, speak to those things, to those events, The church father Augustine wrote, how can you draw close to God when you're far from your own self? So I just want to tell you a story as I close here. One of the the people that was in that season in our church in Drumheller that was, you know, really kind of wild and and really cool was a guy who who was in the Grace House. And he'd spent years in alcohol addiction and he was trying to stay clean, but he relapsed every, every so often. He was seeing an addictions counselor and he'd seen a lot of different therapists and he'd gone through a few different rehab programs. And the story of his life is that he grew up in a really dysfunctional house with an abusive and alcoholic father. And the words that his father spoke to him shaped him. Although he didn't realize how shaping those words were, but when you talk to him, and he didn't realize this, but he would tell me over and over again how his father would tell him all the time, you're worthless. From a young age all the way to his teenage years, his father would say, you're worthless. That was kind of his father's go-to if he made any mistake or he didn't do something right. And his dad was an alcoholic, so he was always worthless, right? He could never do anything right. In his later teenage years, he came to faith in Jesus. And he was, he was with this kid that was on fire for his faith. He had a profound experience of newness of life in Jesus. And he, was, he went on a few missions trips. And as he got into his 20s, he was seen as kind of this growing spiritual leader because he was just so on fire with his faith. But the, word, the wounds of his past always haunted him. He kept trying to ignore that old life because he had new life in Christ, but what he really needed was healing from the wounds he had received. He had to invite Jesus into the darkness of his past to have the light of Jesus shine truth and bring healing. But because no one taught him to do this, and he was like, okay, I just gotta keep pushing on, I gotta keep pushing on, and I'm just gonna put everything in the past. What he found is his thoughts always tended to be dark. So anytime he did something where people applauded him and say, hey, you're really on the right track, we really see a gifting in you, the words of his father would go into his mind and he couldn't shake them. You're worthless. You're worthless. You're worthless. He couldn't shake that. And then when he ended up failing, when he ended up making a mistake, it just confirmed what his mind was already telling him, what his father had already told him, you're worthless. And then he just decided to do what his father had always done and he started to drink. And then he had an addiction that lasted years. And then he spent years wandering in and out of faith and out of church. So to use a phrase from Rob Reamer, he, he really needed to unpack the suitcase of his soul. Pretending his past didn't affect him wasn't really going to work. He had to deal with the wounds and the lies of his past so he could live out the freedom that he had in Christ. He needed to have truth spoken to those lies. Yeah, he had to have darkness exposed to light and and the emotional wounds healed by the presence of Jesus. So part of putting off the old life means bringing that old life to Jesus. Now, if some of you identify with this story, I'd really recommend you find yourself a good Christian counselor and start to unpack the story of your life. And I'd also encourage you to invite Jesus into those places of woundedness and brokenness. If we think, I'm just gonna pretend it didn't exist, I'm just gonna pretend it didn't happen, we're not going to find freedom there. 
But when we invite Jesus into those places of darkness, he can set us free. And so if you feel a prompt in your spirit about something like, hey, there's some stuff I want to unpack in my life. There's some stuff I want to bring before Jesus. I really want to invite you to come to our Life on the Balcony event that's happening with Ingrid Davis on November 5th. I mean, even if you think to yourself, man, my life was pretty tame compared to other people's stories, I still encourage you to attend. It's amazing to see where Jesus was at work in your life in places that maybe you didn't recognize. Or there might be parts of your story that have shaped you, and Jesus wants to kind of speak into that and reframe the narrative that you tell yourself. And um, I'm going to close here by giving you a description of Life on the Balcony, and then we're going to play a, a testimony video. But Life on the Balcony helps you discover a fresh way of looking at your life as you review the events and the patterns of your past in order to discover who you are, why you do what you do, where you are now, and where you're heading. You'll learn to overcome the roadblocks that have detoured you from deeper relationships, sidetracked your professional career, stunted your spiritual growth, and destroyed your self-confidence. And honestly, guys, I think knowing yourself, as Augustine said, is the, is the key to knowing who God is and who your, what your identity is in him. You need to know who you are. And, and the great thing is we have something like this where, where we're gonna prayerfully come into the story of your life and see where Jesus has been at work. And maybe there's some woundedness he wants to heal. And maybe there's some lies you've believed about yourself that he wants to say, you know what, that's not true of you. This is what I actually think of you. So I really invite you to come. We're gonna watch a testimony video and then uh, worship together. Life on the Balcony was a fantastic experience for me and a life-transforming experience. Over the course of the day, we uh, looked at different areas of our lives and just the story of our life and where God was working or some of the things that we were struggling with. Through the seminar, I could see how things I've gone through in my life have not defined me, but they definitely have had an effect on how I think and how I react to things. Throughout the day, you got to kind of zoom out and look at all the events on my life from a different angle and the good things and the bad things and the seemingly benign things and to view them through God, what, what God was doing through them in my life. I realized over the course of the day that um, having encountered the Father heart of God that I didn't need to prove myself to any man anymore. I didn't need to prove myself as, uh, as a child of God. I was already loved by Him, regardless of what happens in my life. I could see that the effect that these experiences had on me caused me to need God's healing, and I was able to come to Him for the healing. So the day was organized to allow for a lot of reflection and prayer, and I got to leave a lot of things that I didn't even realize I was carrying with me all the time and just leave them at the foot of the cross. And so I would encourage you just to sign up for Life on the Balcony and see how God wants to move in your life and uh, see how God might want to heal you.